The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I may be talking fast. Uh, so try to keep up. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. All right, so we've been going through the book of Philippians uh, for several weeks now. Uh, this is actually week 8. And so just a quick review of what we've talked about so far. So far, Week 1, we talked about finding joy in the gospel. That Paul immediately starts off talking about the gospel and that joy is found in the gospel, in the good news, right? That uh, we talked about the difference between happiness and joy, that there's this pull from our hearts to p- pursue happiness, which is temporal, it's not uh, fulfilling, but, but Christ in the gospel offers joy and we can find joy in that. Week two, we talked about finding joy in a kingdom focus, that we need to set our focus above the circumstances of life and focus on eternity, the glory of heaven, that that is uh, what helps us find joy. In week three, we talked about finding joy in the fruit produced by a kingdom focus, that when we have that focus, there will be a fruit of that. Week four, we talked about finding joy in unnatural unity with other believers, because in light of the gospel, nothing else matters, right? In the light of the truth of God's word, nothing else in this life matters, so we can unite under the gospel. Uh, Week five, we talked about finding joy in following Jesus' example for what that unnatural unity really looks like. That we can describe what unnatural unity looks like, but really our example should be Christ. He gave us that example. Paul talked about that. And then week six, we talked about finding joy in genuine obedience. That obedience is a product of our faith, and because of that, it should not be nominal. Obedience should be complete surrender and abandonment to God. And then last week, we talked about finding joy in spiritual service. That we as the church should serve one another, and in that we find Joy. All right, so this morning, we're going to talk about three reasons to not follow your heart. Three reasons to not follow your heart. And that seems antithetical to every Disney movie we've ever watched, right? Every Disney movie we've ever watched says, follow your heart, right? In the movie, A Land Before Time, you guys remember that movie? Littlefoot, his mother tells him, let your heart guide you. It whispers, so listen closely. Pocahontas, she told us to listen with your heart, then you will understand. It's not just Disney telling us to follow our hearts. Paul Abdul told us, break the rules, stand apart, ignore your head, and follow your heart. It gets a little more serious than people like Paul Abdul too, right? Princess Diana told us, only do what your heart tells you. Don't do anything else, only do what your heart tells you. Steve Jobs said there is no reason not to follow your heart. Conway Twitty, even Conway Twitty. He said, hello, darling. Listen to advice, but follow your heart. Amidst all this advice to follow your heart, though, what does the Bible teach us? Right? So the, the culture, we, we can all agree, I think, if we're at all aware of the world around us. We can all agree that the culture tells us to follow our heart. That is the mantra of this society and this world that we live in. We can all agree on that, but what does God say about it? What, is the, what does the scriptures teach us about this idea? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, that the heart is more deceitful than anything else. 
The heart is more deceitful than anything else. All the politicians that you can think of, the heart, your heart is more deceitful than that. And incurable, who can understand it? So the culture tells us to follow our heart, but that's in stark contrast to what the word of God teaches. Right? God says your heart can't be trusted. Don't trust your heart. It will lie to you more than anything else. God's saying your own heart is less trustworthy than any other person or thing on this planet. It will lie to you more than any other thing in this world. And that's a big statement, right? That's a big deal because we know a lot of things in this world that are untrustworthy. But the scriptures say that your heart is less trustworthy than any of those other things. So what did Jesus say about it, though? Mark 7, verse 20, listen to this. And he said, talking about Jesus, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile a person. So Jesus is saying the same thing. Right? Essentially, he's saying the same thing. Our hearts are wicked. All sin is just an external symptom of a greater problem, which is your heart. Your heart. So when you say or you do something so sinful that it surprises you, have you ever been in that moment where you do something, you're like, man, that is not me. That's out of character for me. Your kids act up and you lash out and you yell at them and you jump them. Or your wife says something, it pushes a button and you just yell at her. I mean, those things are from your heart. We'll say, man, that's, that's not me. That, that's, that's totally uncharacterized by who I am as a person. That's just, just a mishap. It's just a, a blip. But the reality is, is that is who you are as a person. It is in your heart. That's what Jesus says. All of those things, all your sin comes from within here. It's not that the devil made you do it. It's that it's in your heart. Your heart is sinful. So people will journey down a path of following their heart and look back and be so surprised at where they ended up. But it's just the natural destination for such a journey. This is a hard pill for some to swallow because it means that you are not a good person. I am not a good person. We are not good people. There are no good people. Jesus said that. And we read verses like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we can accept that we have sinned, that we mess up, right? We can accept that acknowledgement that no one is perfect. We can, we can acknowledge that. But what the Bible teaches us is that it's not that just that we messed up, but we had this sinful heart, this sinful nature deep within us. And at its root, you are not a good person. That's what the Bible teaches. So what's the point? Don't follow your heart because your heart and your logic cannot be trusted. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there is a way that seems right to a person. So in your mind, in your heart of hearts, your logic, there may be a, a way that seems right, but what does it say? But in its end, it leads to death. So this is the point that Paul's making in our text this morning. Culture says to follow your heart, but Paul is making the argument that there's no joy in following your heart because your heart will lead you astray every single time. So let's read together. Philippians 3, verse 1. He says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to this death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So right out of the gate, Paul says, do not follow your heart. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. He says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he says, in addition. In addition to what? In addition to chapter 2. All chapter 2 was about living in others' first life. It was about laying down our desires and interests for the desires and interests of others. It was about a complete exchange of your heart's desires for a lifestyle of obedience to the Father. It was about spiritual service to your fellow believer. None of that sounds like follow your heart. None of that sounds like follow your heart. Instead, the message is that despite your sinful heart's affections, choose others first. Choose obedience first. That's the message of chapter 2. So in addition to that idea, watch out for these three worldly philosophies. He lays out three different things. These worldly philosophies that will lead you to abandon what Paul taught in chapter 2. And he says, look, this is really important. He says, this is, this is not a problem to write to you about this again because this is important. It's for your good that you hear about this over and over and over again. That we need this constant reminder because our heart constantly will lead us astray. And Paul's saying, I'm going to continue to remind you of this because this is so incredibly important that you get this idea. There are religious leaders out there that will tell you to follow your heart. They'll tell you that God is all about you, that there's no wrath of God, only love. They'll tell you that God just wants you to be happy, so pursue your heart's desire. And look, this isn't a new phenomenon. This was happening in the first century church as well. And Paul mentions three specific types of philosophies for us to watch out for. Each time, notice he emphatically tells us to be on guard against such things. Every time he mentions one, he says, watch out, watch out, watch out. So who's he talking about? First, he talks about the dogs. What do we know about dogs? They will live their life to satisfy their physical yearnings. They have no self-control. They're dogs. Uh, we have a dog, and uh, she uh, is a good dog, but at the same time, she will do whatever it takes to satisfy her physical yearnings, right? She will many times get into the trash can and eat garbage, which is disgusting. She has no thought about the fact that that is disgusting, for one, or two, that I'm the one that's going to come clean up the mess after her. She doesn't care. All she cares about the fact is, I'm hungry, and there's food. 
Or maybe I'm not even hungry, but that smells good and I want it, right? That's all she cares about. She will, she will dig through the trash all the time. And so we have to be careful about that. Uh, dogs are led completely by their carnal nature. They're all about filling their belly, all about gratifying their physical yearnings. That's what dogs are all about. We had, a, when we were living in Lumberton, we didn't have a fence around our yard. But we had this electric fence thing that kept our dog in our yard, which was great. But the problem with that is it doesn't keep other dogs out of my yard. Yeah, and so we had a visitor one day. We woke up in the middle of the night, or middle of the early morning hours, to a visitor defiling my dog. Right? My innocent female dog was being defiled in our yard. And, and, and so I was very irritated by this because I don't want to deal with puppies. And so I go out there and I deal with that, but I never called the cops. I never called the cops and said that this other dog was assaulting my dog. Right? Why? Because that's what dogs do. Right? They gratify their physical yearnings. They don't practice self-control. This is what dogs do. They, they satisfy their physical yearnings. That's what they are. And, and, and is this kind of philosophy not where our world is now? Is that not where our world is now? Are we not a culture that seeks to gratify their physical yearnings above all else? Are we not a culture that seeks the next thing to make us feel good? Is that not who we are as a culture? If you're bored with your spouse, what do you do? You gratify your physical yearning and get you a new one. Our culture has set aside the month of June to celebrate gratifying physical yearnings. We're told to do what makes us happy. So if you're a man that desires to be a woman, be a woman. If you're a woman that desires to be a man, be a man. Don't, don't worry about the created order. Do what you want, what makes you feel good. Don't worry about self-control. Just live according to your physical yearnings. We've also told young people, don't worry about controlling yourself sexually. When you become inconveniently pregnant, just murder the baby. No big deal. No need for self-control. Just gratify your physical yearnings and terminate the inconvenience later. That's what we tell our young people. Not only that, but we've decided as a culture that buying stuff is what will satisfy your soul. So get the next credit card, buy all the stuff in the world, just whatever it takes to make you happy. Have all the credit card debt. If that doesn't yield the results you want, we'll just file bankruptcy and start over. That's all you need. We're a culture that's all about fulfilling our own gratifications. Paul says, watch out for this kind of philosophy. It's dangerous. Guard against it. Discern how it stands in contrast to the real gospel. But he goes on. He talks about the evil workers. What are evil workers? These are people that do all the stuff, but the motive of their hearts is evil. So on the outside, they look awesome. They look like they're living the life that God wants them to live, but the the, the desires of their heart are evil. The motive of their hearts are evil. So they build, but they build for their own glory. A recent example of this is a guy named Ravi Zacharias. A guy who led a huge ministry. Many people respected this guy. This guy has shaped how many people have apologetics. He's, he's done a lot of really good work for the church. A lot of things that give us arguments to defend our faith. A lot of people use his curriculum in churches. But we find out later after he dies that his entire ministry was being used so that he could abuse women. He used his position of power to gratify his sexual desires. 
These are people that do all the work. They're ministry leaders, pastors, teachers, etc. that are doing godly work for their own benefit. Pastors that use their position to elevate themselves. These are the Kenneth Copelands of the world. They're rocking the $2,000 suit and a brand new jet while there's still unreached people groups all over the world. They don't have a heart for people. They have a heart for self. A true worker is a servant, not someone that needs a marked parking spot, a TV show, or a ministry named after themselves. Paul says, watch out, discern this philosophy, and run from it. And the last group of people, the philosophy that he mentions is those that mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about? He's talking about people who circumcise themselves physically without ever circumcising their heart. These people are legalistic. They're only worried about how things look on the outside, how people will perceive them. They're not concerned about really being changed by the gospel. They just want people to perceive them as good people. They just, I'm I'm a good person. Everybody want, look at me, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, but they could care less about the desires of their heart. They could care less about God really coming in and changing those desires. They're just worried about how they will be perceived to the public. When we were kids, my brother, he's not like this anymore, but he was a slob. Just absolute slob when we were kids. And we would be told to clean our rooms, and his method of cleaning his room was if you don't see it, it's not there. So he would shove everything under the bed, he would shove everything in the closets, shove stuff in the toy box. So if he came in and get a quick look, and be like, all right, that's better than it was. But if you started opening stuff, you might die. Because stuff's gonna fall on you, the abyss will suck you in. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could have happened. He had no desire to really clean his room. He just wanted to make sure he didn't get in trouble for it. He wanted to make sure his parents saw that it was clean. So he just hid all the mess away in hopes that they wouldn't see it. This is what Paul's talking about here. People that want to hide the mess of their hearts in hopes that people won't see it rather than actually letting Jesus come in and remove it all. They like the garbage in there. They don't want people to think they're bad, but they like the garbage that's inside of them. They don't want to let that go. They want to know God on their terms. And Paul says, watch out. Discern this philosophy, guard against it. Watch out for it. So three types of people all wanting to follow their hearts in different ways. Paul says, don't do it. Watch out for it. Don't let it creep up among you. Deal with it. Don't let these things be a part of who you are as God's people. These three philosophies should not be in the church today. But why? Why should we watch out for this stuff? Why is it so important? What reasons do we have to not follow our hearts? Paul gives us three, so let's get into this. Reason one is that we are set apart from the world. Reason one for not following our hearts is that we are set apart from the world. Look at verse three, the first part. He says, for we are the circumcision. We are the real circumcision. What does that mean? Physical circumcision was a sign of Israel's covenant with God. It was a sign that God was Israel's God and that that Israel was God's people. It was this covenant thing that, that, that God had them do. He would be their God and they would be his people. But circumcision was never supposed to just be physical. It was supposed to be of the heart. We know that from Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants and you will love him with all of your heart, with all of your souls, so that you will live. This relationship with God set Israel apart from the rest of the world. 
right? They had this special relationship with God and that set them apart from the rest of the world. They were God's representatives to the, to the rest of the world. That was their responsibility. They were supposed to live in a way that the rest of the world looked and saw how awesome God was and wanted themselves to give themselves to God. Instead, Israel turned their backs on God. They rejected him and pursued the things of this world. Their identity was supposed to be found in who their God was, but unfortunately they followed the sinful desires of their hearts and pursued the things of this world. And Paul is saying that we as Christians are now the circumcised. We are God's people and he is our God. You are God's people and he is your God. If you say you are a Christian this morning, that means something. It doesn't mean that you just come to church on Sunday. It means something. It means that you are God's people and that he is your God, that you have submitted yourself to the authority of him in your life. And so if that's true, our life will be different. We'll be set apart from the world. We'll be God's chosen nation, his representatives to the globe. Paul talks about this in Romans 2, verse 25. He says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you're a lawbreaker, all of us, lawbreakers, your circumcisions become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So Paul says, no religious practice or family heritage will set you apart as God's people, only circumcision of the heart. Only allowing God to come in and change you from the inside out. That's what sets you apart. We don't follow the philosophies of this world because we're not of this world. As God's people, we aren't of this world. This is not our home. This is not where we reside. This is, this is just a temporal place. We're just passing through. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says, dear friends, I urge you as what? Strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful, sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Peter's saying, look, you are strangers and exiles in this world, and I urge you as that to not follow your heart because you're set apart from this world. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when you slander, or when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. In our text, Paul gives us two ways that we're set apart. First, look at the second part of verse three. He says we're set apart by the Spirit. He says we're the circumcision, the ones who worship God, who worship by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit that sets you apart as a child of God. Romans eight fourteen. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. The Spirit has set us aside to be God's people and enable us to follow God in a way that Israel never could. It's the Holy Spirit lives inside you that enables you to be a true follower of God. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you, enabling you to worship God in a real and genuine way. So you're not bound to the flesh. You're not enslaved to your heart's desires. You've been set free from that. That's why Paul says, Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and what? You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, you're not going to be led by your own heart, the own, your own sinful desires. 
The flesh brings death. Following your heart brings death, but the spirit brings life. That's why Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We don't follow our hearts because we've been set apart by the spirit, but also because we've been set apart by our confidence. Look at uh, the third part of verse three. He says, boast in Christ Jesus. And do not put confidence in the flesh. Don't put confidence in your own heart. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Paul's saying, look, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, it's him. He was zealous and worked hard to fulfill the law. He was passionate about it. He looked awesome on the outside, but it meant nothing. All the good stuff that he could do in life meant nothing. It meant nothing because he was apart from God. Because even with all the effort and prestige that he had, he was still lost. He was still spiritually dead. we got a friend of mine who uh, was a pastor and sinned in a pretty public way. Um, and he failed like any of us could. But he was embarrassed by it. He told me that what was most embarrassing is that it was even possible for him to make the mistake that he did. And it took him some time to like come to that conclusion like that, that he did that. That's who he is. That that's who his sinful heart is. He thought that he was above that because he was a pastor and well-respected and all these things. He thought, man, I'm, I'm above that. But, but he failed just like anybody else. That's what Paul's talking about. There's no reason for confidence in the flesh. There's no reason for you to think that you're a good person. In your own strength, you are spiritually weak. In your own strength, you have no ability to abstain from sin. So don't fall into a trap thinking that you're too good to have an affair. Don't fall into a trap thinking you're too good to struggle with an addiction. Don't fall into a trap thinking you're not susceptible to pride. Listen to me this morning, church. You are prone to wander. That is your heart of hearts. You are prone to wander from what God says is good. You're prone to wander from him. And left to your own advices, you will always wander from him. Don't place hope in your own logic or strength. They will fail you. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, 14 through 25, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin, for I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my body and mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Here's the gospel, though. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's your hope. 
Your heart is prone to wander. You're prone to seek the sin that your heart desires. But thanks be to God that there's hope. That he made a way for us to be reconciled back to God through faith. What a profound statement. Paul's saying, I'm weak. I don't do what I know I should do, and I do what I know I shouldn't do. Can we relate this morning? And even when I do good, there's still something inside of me that's trying to wage war against it, to taint it with bad motives. We are wretched beings. This is what makes the gospel such good news. It's not just that we mess up sometimes. It's that at our heart of hearts, we are horrible people. We will pursue self at all costs. But thanks be to God who changes our affections, who sends the Holy Spirit to come and live in the heart of one who has faith and change his affections, change that heart to lead us to pursue the things of God. Who can rescue us? God, through Jesus Christ, already did. So what sets us apart is that we know that we're weak. We know that we're wretched. So we don't look to our own hearts for guidance, but to the very word of God. So we're set apart by the spirit, but we're also set apart by our confidence. Our confidence is not in our heart. As believers, we should know better than to follow our heart because our heart is what got us in, the, in all this mess in the first place. So we follow the word of God. Psalm 73, 26 says this, my heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. So why should we not follow our heart? Because we're different than this world. We're set apart by the spirit and our understanding that our heart can't be trusted. The culture's mantra may be follow your heart, but we as the church, we know better than that. We know that we are a wretched, sinful people and that our hearts are deceitful above all other things and can't be trusted. Reason two is because knowing Jesus is better. Knowing Jesus is better than following your heart. Look at verse seven. But everything that was gained to me, all of that stuff that he had to boast about, he's considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul's saying you can't have both. You can't have both. You can't follow your heart and follow Jesus at the same time. If you're a wretched man and your heart is wicked and sinful, you can't hold on to it and still follow Jesus. It doesn't work that way. It's not how this works. Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 1, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. And look what he says. How? That's a big word there. How can we who died in sin still live in it? How is that even possible that we who had died to sin can still live in that? It's not possible. So it's not possible that you would follow your heart and still pursue Christ. There's, those two things are antithetical to one another. You can't say, I follow Jesus, but yet I'm still going to follow my heart. You got to draw a line somewhere. You got to choose one. 1 John 3, 9, everyone who's been born of God does not sin. Because his seed remains in him, the spirit of God. He is not able to sin because he's been born of God. So the one who has been born of God doesn't live in lawless rebellion anymore. 
They won't choose their own sinful heart. Why? Because the spirit of the living God dwells within them. But Paul's point in our text is that yes, it is one way or the other. Yes, you have to choose, but Jesus is better. That's his point. Jesus is better. Yes, you have to choose between Jesus and following your heart, but everything in this world is lost compared to knowing Jesus. So you've lost nothing in abandoning your heart's desires for knowing Jesus. Instead, you've gained everything. And this is a faith thing. You have to decide if you're going to trust that Jesus is better. That's the decision you have to make. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is better? That, yes, your heart leads you to pursue the things of this world, but do you trust that Jesus is better? Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has seen, who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Ephesians 2, verse 6. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he may display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying in these two passages? He's saying that Jesus is better. That Jesus is worth more than anything that your heart can tell you is worth more. Don't fall for that trap because Jesus is always and will always be better. Knowing Jesus is better than all the money that your sinful heart can desire. Knowing Jesus is better than your sexuality. Knowing Jesus is better than your relationships. He's better than power and prestige. He's better than comfort and ease. Listen to me this morning. Do you believe that? Because you have to make the decision at some point in your life if you really trust that that's true. Otherwise, you're always going to pursue your heart. Because your sinful heart will often lead you to think otherwise. But real faith understands that Jesus Christ is better than your sinful desires. He is better than following your heart. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. Taste and see this morning that God is good. He's better than all of the other things that your heart's affections lead you to. He's better than all of it. So why do we not follow our heart? Because Jesus is better. He's better than anything that your heart can lead you to. And the final reason this morning is this. Eternity is at stake. Look at verse 10. He says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul understands that his heart can't be trusted and that Jesus is better. So because of that, he's aiming at two things. Why are these things so important? Because eternity is at stake. We know that because of the last part of this passage, he says, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Some translations say, in order that I may reach. One example, uh, this, isn't, this isn't a sign that Paul was unsure about his salvation. When you read that, it seems like it's kind of like, it's a 50-50 chance. We'll see what happens. 
But we know that's not true, right? You got to look at the whole of scripture. Look at all Paul's writings. You know that Paul doesn't think that. Look at one example of this, Romans 8, verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul knew that he was sealed until the day of redemption. He knew that. Instead, this is a sign of Paul's humility. Again, Paul knew that he was a wretched, sinful man and that his heart couldn't be trusted. That's why evidence of salvation is so important. We read all through Paul's writings and we see that evidence of salvation is something that Paul values significantly. He constantly was talking about it. Anyone can convince themselves in their own heart that they're saved. Anyone can convince themselves of that, but Paul wanted to see the proof of it in his own life. He wanted to see the evidence that the Spirit was at work in his life. That's why he says he aims at these things. Because he wants to see the proof that his heart's affections were not for the things of this world, but they were for God. The evidence, or what Paul is aiming at here, first thing he's aiming at is to know him and his power. Because Jesus is better, Paul says his goal is to know him in his power. Paul understands that life is found in the pursuit of knowing Christ. That if you want to experience life in this world, it's not in pursuit of your own heart's affections. It's in pursuit of Christ and Christ alone. John 17, 3 says this, and this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Intimacy with God is the key to eternal life. You have no hope at eternal life without surrendering your life to Christ and having a relationship with him. There is no hope for you. There is no other way but through knowledge of and communion with God. And that's only possible through Christ. So Jesus said in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is our only means to knowledge of and communion with God. Therefore, he's the only means to eternal life. Paul says that his aim is is to know him. Why? Because eternity is at stake. When we reject Christ and choose following our own heart, we reject the eternal life that only Christ can give. That's what's at stake here. When you choose your own sinful heart's desires over Christ, then you've made your bed. And unfortunately, one day you're going to lie in it. That's what the Bible teaches. There's only one way into relationship with God, and that's through Christ. There's only way, one way into heaven, eternity, and that's through a relationship with God. Paul aimed at knowing God and experiencing the power of God in his life. It's only by the power of God that we can choose him over the desires of hearts. Paul wanted to experience God's power in him, changing his heart and giving him new affections. That's what Paul wanted to see in his life. He said, this is what I'm aiming at. I want to see God move in my life. I want to see him work in my heart, changing my affections. Because if I know if I see that, then I know that I'm secure until the day of redemption. I know that my surrender was genuine if I can see God moving in my life. So Paul aims at these. Why? Because that power was evidence of his salvation. But he also aims to fellowship in his sufferings. Not only was Paul aiming at knowing God and his power, but also to fellowship in his sufferings. Paul wanted to put to death the longings of his own heart. 
He wanted to execute his heart's desires. Look what he says, being conformed to death, to his death. Julian read this passage earlier, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul says, I've killed my old self. He's gone. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying, look, that old self is gone. He's been murdered. Following his heart is no longer an option. He wants nothing to do with his old self. He wants Christ and nothing else because Jesus is better. Why? Because, again, eternity is at stake. Look what he tells the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 24. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those of us who truly have a relationship with Christ, those of us who truly belong to Jesus, we've crucified our old self. It's gone. All those old desires, they're gone. We recognize that our heart's affections are sinful. We want nothing to do with that. We want Christ and Christ alone because he's better. You can't have both can't say that Jesus is Lord and still follow your heart. It doesn't work that way. A genuine follower of Jesus crucifies the flesh. So why do we not follow our hearts? Because eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. So the question this morning is, have you bought into the lies of the culture? Have you bought into the lies of the culture that tells you to follow your heart? Have you bought into that? Are you following after the dogs that seek only to gratify their physical yearnings with no self-control? Are you following after the evil workers that seek only to labor for their own benefit? Are you following after those that mutilate the flesh that only want the moral laws of God without surrendering their hearts to God? Don't follow your heart. Don't do it. Why? Because if you're a professing Christian, you've been set apart for more. The spirit in your understanding of your depravity sets you apart from this world. Jesus is better than your heart's desires. Whatever you you think you want in this world, Jesus is better. You think you need a new car, Jesus is better. You think you need a better house, Jesus is better. You think you need a new spouse, that your marriage isn't fulfilling you, Jesus is better. And then finally, eternity is at stake. You can claim to be a Christian, but if there's no fruit, there's no salvation. And me saying that may offend you. It may be hard for you to hear that. But that's what the book says. I'm called to tell you what the book says. Not what I think. Not what culture thinks. If that means offending you, I'm sorry. But truth is truth. And at some point in your life, you have to decide, is this truth or is this truth? Which one are you going to lead by? Because if this is truth, then this is God. If you've decided in your heart that whatever you think and your logic is what is truth then you are God. And let me just be honest with you, you're not a very good one.
No one I'm going to worship. So either this is truth or this is truth. And if this is truth, you can't follow this. I mean, it's that black and white. I feel like I'm constantly making things black and white. Maybe it's because I view the world that way, but this is just one of those things. It is what it is. This isn't even a, a thing that there is room for gray. This is just black and white because it's black and white in the letters of the scriptures. So you have to choose. What do you trust in? So what's your response going to be this morning? Are you going to buy into the lies of culture that says follow your heart or will you surrender to the word of God that says your heart is more deceitful than anything else? If you choose your heart, know that you are rejecting God and there is no salvation for those who reject God. This is a faith thing. So what's the challenge this morning? If you've never truly surrendered your heart to Jesus, do that today. If you've never truly given your heart to Jesus, then my challenge to you, my, I'm, I'm imploring you that you this morning would choose to surrender your heart to Jesus because Jesus is better than your heart's affections. And if you have surrendered your heart to Jesus, but the flesh is still waging war against your soul and you struggle with the lies of your own heart, you're in good company with the Apostle Paul and with every other Christian that's ever lived. There's always, for all of us, this thing pulling us away from God, pulling our affections away from God to, to serve self. The Apostle Paul dealt with the same thing. Every Christian ever has dealt with the same thing. So here's the key to discerning where you're at. Because again, your heart will lie to you, right? So here's the key for, dis for discerning where you're at. If there's something inside of you that wells up with rebellion and anger, when I talked about things like homosexuality and abortion and greed, then it's likely that you've chosen to follow your own heart over surrendering to Jesus. Our culture is going to tell you something totally different. That's not a popular opinion. Truth is, people will hate me for that. But I'm not the one saying it. It's what's in the book. You can't choose your heart and at the still same time surrender your heart. See how that works? You can't choose your heart and your logic and at the same time surrender it to Jesus because you're really just holding on to your heart. You're not surrendering to anything. It doesn't work that way. Surrender is surrender. But if you know your sinful state, then you believe that Jesus is better. But like Paul, you struggle with waging war against your affections and you mourn that. You mourn your sin. You hate your sin. And that's a sign of true surrender. That means that in your heart of hearts, you agree with God about the sinful state of your heart. That means that your heart's been changed. Because apart from the work of God in your life, that can't happen. You see the difference? One is rebellious. One is submissive. And again, I get this is an unpopular opinion, but it's what the book says, and I have a responsibility to tell you what the book says, whether you like it or not. If your heart is one of rebellion, my prayer is that you will choose to surrender.
I've been praying for that all week. That if you're in this room right now, and you're like, man, that dude's an idiot. I cannot believe he's saying the things that he's saying. And I've been praying for you all week. That God would break your heart. That he would reveal himself to you. And in this moment, this morning, you would become acutely aware of your sinful condition. And that you would recognize that Jesus is better. That's been my prayer for you all week. I don't know you. I don't know your name. But I've been praying for you all week. If your heart is one of submission, then my prayer is that you will continue to mourn your sin and never trust your heart. That's my prayer for you this morning. Would you please stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? In a moment, the band is going to come up here and they're going to sing. This is going to be an opportunity for you to respond however God's leading you to respond. If you're in that first category of people who have never truly surrendered your heart, maybe in this moment you're realizing, man, I've never truly surrendered my heart to Jesus. Maybe you said a prayer, maybe you walked down an aisle, maybe you got dunked in a baptistry, but in your heart of hearts you know that you never truly surrendered. My hope and prayer this morning is that you would come down, grab the people that are going to be down here by the hand and say, hey, I want, I want to know how to truly surrender my heart to Jesus. Don't just believe that that's true about you. Because if there's no fruit, it's not true. Put yourself to the test like Paul says. And evaluate your heart. Evaluate who you are as a person. Evaluate the affections of your heart. If you've never truly surrendered to Jesus, then my prayer is that as the band sings, that you would come down, grab these people by the hand and say, I want to know what it means to surrender my life to Jesus. For the rest of us in the room who are professing Christians, we, we, we believe that we've surrendered, we see fruit of that in our lives, but we also recognize that we are sinful, wretched people. My prayer for us is that we would not lose sight of that reality and that we would never fall in the trap of trusting our heart. So this morning, if that's you, if you're a Christian, you know you're a Christian, but maybe the culture has been pulling at your heartstrings and maybe you start to have, have started to believe some of the things that our culture teaches us, this morning my prayer for you is that you would repent of that and that you would make this book the foundation of your life. Don't let culture tell you what truth is. Look to God's word for what truth is. Father God, we thank you for this time that we have together this morning. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in all that is done this morning. We pray that you would move, that your spirit would move, that you would break down callous hearts. You would lead people to repentance, that you would breathe life into dry bones. God, we pray that there are people here this morning that they have a spirit of rebellion, a spirit of pursuing self and their own heart's desires, their own affections. God, I pray that in this moment, this morning, they would recognize that there is no life in that. That life is found in you and you alone and found in surrendering that sinful heart to you. God, I pray that this morning you would move. And for the believers in the room this morning, God, that you would convict us of sin, convict us of where our heart's affections have led us astray. God, I pray that we would deal with that this morning, deal with it ruthlessly. 
God, we just pray that your spirit would move. Should we pray? Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.